Hey, everybody. Good morning. It is Wednesday, January 10th, and you are listening to the Mo News Podcast. No, I am not Mo Shwanunu. I am Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. We read all of the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. So I've sort of lost my voice. <laughs> there so, he is. Uh, my, so my contributions to today's podcast will be more limited than I would like, uh, but I'm still here. Uh, literally, as we were recording yesterday's podcast, Jill, I was losing my voice through the podcast. <laughs> I was hoping 24 hours of tea and honey would help. And yet, here I am. I hope you guys will roll with me today. Mosh, absolutely. Are you feeling okay, though? This is the thing. I feel much better than I sound, which is why I'm here. All right, Mosh. Well, I will do the heavy lifting on the talking, um, and let's get started. I appreciate that, Jill. I, I will uh, try to provide my thoughts at every story. We'll see how far into the speed read I get today. <laughs> we'll know by the end if I'm doing on this day in history that things have gone downhill. <laughs> <laughs> You'll hear it in real time, folks. All right, let's get to some headlines here from tornadoes in the south to blizzards in the west to hurricane force winds in the northeast. Wild weather hits a big portion of the United States. Some answers and some more questions about Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and his mysterious hospitalization. What we know. Meta, the owner of Instagram and Facebook, taking steps to protect teens on its platforms. An apology from Boeing after a piece of one of its planes fell off mid-flight. On to politics, a couple of developments in two of Donald Trump's court cases. Overseas, France has its youngest and first openly gay prime minister. And how many books did you read in 2023? See how you compare to some of your friends. Plus, Mosh or I will have on this day in history. Jill, I think I can get there. Uh, your clue today, for many, this show is the best show HBO has ever offered. Well, I know what I think, but I know what you're probably referring to. Okay, let's start with severe weather across the country. 49 out of 50 states had a weather watch or warning in the last 24 hours. The only state free for warnings, North Dakota. And that's sort of a curveball there, right? During winter. That's right. So depending on where you are listening to this, likely millions of people will be without power on Wednesday morning. So hopefully someone out there has power and is listening. About 162 million people as of this recording on Tuesday night are under wind alerts. On Tuesday, a massive storm with heavy rain and strong winds sparked tornadoes across the south, toppling trees and ripping roofs off of buildings one person was killed in Alabama. Several were injured in Florida. The system then took aim at the Midwest with blizzard conditions and also to the Northeast with rain and wind. The storm shutting down major highways in the central part of the United States, causing whiteout conditions in Kansas. There were over 100 crashes, 19 of which resulted in injuries. The National Weather Service confirming at least three tornadoes touched down in the Florida panhandle with wind gusts as high as 106 miles per hour. Parts of Georgia had winds as high as 70 miles per hour and hail the size of baseballs. If you are traveling, if you are flying, definitely check your flight status. Hundreds of flights have been canceled so far, the most at Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport and also in Dallas-Fort Worth. Motion, of course, this all comes as you and your family are set to fly back to New York this week. Yes, Jill, we have a late morning flight scheduled for today. We'll see whether those high winds die down in time for uh, that flight to happen. 
Otherwise, another day in the sun here in Florida. So we'll see what happens. The big question is, how bad does it get for the Northeast? There's a huge potential for heavy flooding, heavy rainfall. Uh, There's a state of emergency in a number of counties in New Jersey already on Tuesday in expectation of this storm. And it comes as nearly two feet of snow dropped in areas of New England over the weekend. The wind will be a big deal. We're looking at gusts of more than 50 miles per hour during the storm. And then you have the Pacific Northwest blizzard warnings issued across the area. According to AccuWeather, Tuesday's storm blanketed many areas in the Northwest with heavy rain and snow, cities like Seattle, Portland, Eugene. Then later this week, AccuWeather says that some of the highest snowfall totals for the season so far are expected. Areas of Oregon and Washington could see anywhere from two feet to four feet of snow. And then travel with me even further west out to Hawaii, where there was a tornado warning at one point this week. Pretty unusual for the area, according to the folks in Hawaii. This is only the fifth time in 20 years there's been a tornado warning in Hawaii. And Jill, I've been talking about how it's going to get worse next week. Right now, the latest forecast shows that as of Monday, 88% of the lower 48 states will be at or below 32 degrees. A third of Americans will be below zero as of Monday morning. And that includes wide swaths of the Northern Plains, uh, Illinois, Wisconsin, Iowa, Nebraska, all in the negatives. Notable Iowa, because that's Iowa Caucus Day. So as voters head out on Monday night, because it's a caucus, you have to be there at a specific time. It's going to be very, very, very chilly. So that could affect turnout. And we'll see how that impacts the final result on Monday. Okay, now to Washington. We are learning more about Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's mysterious hospitalization and why no one, including the president, knew about it until days later. So finally, on Tuesday, we learned from doctors at Walter Reed Medical Center that Austin has been hospitalized since January 1st for complications following surgery to treat prostate cancer. Doctors say that Austin underwent the initial prostate cancer surgery on December 22nd. He was under general anesthesia and was then released home for the holiday. And then just about a week later, on January 1st, he had complications from the surgery, which included nausea and severe abdominal hip and leg pain. It was later identified as a urinary tract infection. The following day, he was admitted to the ICU at Walter Reed. He's expected to make a full recovery. The White House saying that the president was not informed of Austin's diagnosis of prostate cancer until Tuesday morning, more than a week after his second hospitalization. And despite having that initial surgery back on December 22nd, a reminder that Austin is sixth in line of presidential succession, and he is a key decision maker for all things military and national security. Military officials say that both times that he was hospitalized, Austin declined to inform the White House and transferred authority to run the Pentagon to his deputy. Bedtime? Bath time. <laughs> so back last week on January 2nd, the day after he was rushed to the hospital with that subsequent infection, his duties were transferred to his deputy, Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks. She was then on vacation in Puerto Rico at the time and wasn't given details on his condition either. So this, of course, comes as there's two wars happening right now, heightened tensions in Asia and in Europe, leading basically everyone on the right, but including a number of Democrats too, allies of the president and of Austin, to question the decision here. According to the Washington Post, the secrecy behind the hospitalization has frustrated a number of people at the White House. Uh, One official was quoted as saying this showed unbelievably bad judgment on the part of Austin. 
Some lawmakers on Capitol Hill, uh, these are Republicans, have gone so far as to call on him to resign. Uh, The White House says even if he resigns, they will not accept his resignation. Uh, They continue to have confidence in him uh, despite all of uh, what has gone down here in the past week. A Pentagon spokesperson says, clearly, we could have done better and we will do better. They say that Austin's hospitalization did not hinder operations overseas. A reminder that while he was in the hospital last week, that's when the U.S. military conducted that strike against a terror leader in Baghdad. Officials say that the authority for that strike was given in advance. Uh, And a reminder here that the president is the commander in chief and makes his decisions. But the secretary of defense is a key decision maker. But he has a lot of people around him uh, who can help and advise the president on those decisions. So we'll await more from Austin here as he recovers. A spokesperson says he's recovering well and is in very good spirits, which I take to mean, Jill, if he's in good spirits, it means he hasn't bothered to Google his name in the past couple of days. <laughs> Look, there is something that just feels like icky about talking about somebody's personal health. Sure. And why they're in the hospital at the same time, given his role in government, his access to classified material, the fact that. There are two active wars happening and and heightened tensions across the globe. Uh, it is important to know how he is doing his mental status. And, and there are special protocols, actually, when people who have classified information go under anesthesia because you can come out of it and who knows what you could say. Yeah, notably over at the White House, the chief of staff there, uh, Jeff Zients, is launching a review right now of cabinet protocols for delegating authority. This all comes Uh, with the pressure related to uh, what happened with Austin here. So across the board, they're asking all the cabinet secretaries, what are the procedures here for uh, delegating authority, for alerting the White House? This has led to a larger review. And we've gotten some questions on the Instagram account from uh, Mo News Committee saying, I don't think we should know what Austin is dealing with. You know, he has a right to privacy as far as his health conditions are concerned. I think part of this probably could have been prevented by alerting authorities to what was going on privately, uh, because now sort of everything has become public uh, and there's a sort of demand to know. And again, the way we operate in this country is that our elected officials report to the people, right, where their bosses. Now, of course, he's appointed and confirmed by the Senate, but ultimately, you know, serves in a very uh, vital role. So there's an expectation on the part of the media uh, and on the part of a number of, you know, people in the public to say, I have a right to know what's happening with the key people involved in uh, you know vital national security decisions. Everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there, noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do, but you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl & Branch. We have Bowl & Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Moshe and I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They're completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. 
So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl and Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONews at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl and Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. That promo code MONews, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, 1-5% off your order. All right, if you're a longtime listener, you know that both Jill and I have been drinking AG1 as part of our daily nutritional supplement now for more than a year. Especially as a new dad, I can use all the help I can get. AG1 is a foundational nutritional supplement. You get more than 70 vital vitamins, probiotics, prebiotics, and minerals uh, that you need. It's just a scoop of powder uh, with a glass of water in the morning. And then you've gotten everything you need to go about your day. AG1 has been around for more than a decade now. They continually refine their formula to make sure they have a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. And they've been a longtime partner here at Mo News, uh, providing a special deal for all of you and the Mo News community. If you want to take ownership of your health today, it starts with AG1. With the Mo News code, you get a free one-year supply of vitamin D, as well as five free travel packs of AG1 with your first purchase. You can head over to drinkag1.com. That is drinkag, the number one, dot com slash Mo News. Again, the special deal right now, a free one-year supply of vitamin D, five free travel packs. Head over to drinkag1.com slash Mo News to check it out. All right, time for the speed read from the Wall Street Journal. Boeing CEO David Calhoun said the company needs to acknowledge its mistake as the aircraft maker reels from a door plug failure that has resulted in roughly 170 of its planes being grounded and spooked its customers. He said Tuesday in an address to employees just days after the incident on that Alaska Airlines flight, We are going to approach this number one, acknowledging our mistakes. We're going to approach it with 100% and complete transparency every step of the way. Regulators have grounded about 170 Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes since Saturday after a door plug detached from a MAX 9 jet at 16,000 feet, leaving the plane flying with a gaping hole. United Airlines and Alaska Airlines have the most MAX 9s They have said that they have found other MAX 9 planes that also have loose parts as they check the grounded fleet. Boeing executives said airlines have been shaken by the incident. Calhoun saying moments like this shake them to the bone, just like it shook me. They have confidence in all of us. They do, and they will again. Calhoun said Boeing engineers are now scouring the door plug that was recovered on Monday in search of clues of what went wrong. Boeing executives cautioning that They shouldn't speculate about what caused the accident. And Calhoun pledged to work with U.S. air safety investigators who are probing the accident. Yeah, remarkably, that door plug that was found in the backyard of that uh, high school science teacher in Oregon was basically all together. Uh, It had fallen through a huge tree. And by the way, this teacher is a physics teacher. Bob. His name is Bob Sauer. (laughs) Uh, He made a point of uh, speaking to his classroom about it. And he was talking about, you know, it fell three miles in the air. It would have created a huge, uh, you know, hole in the ground, but it went through this tree. So he actually used it as a lesson. I love high school science teachers as an opportunity to give a lesson in physics and gravity to his classroom. And so because it fell through this tree, it's basically intact. The window was still intact too, Jill, remarkably. And so they've been looking at it and trying to figure out, okay, what led it to pop out? You know, the way planes work is there's much more pressure inside the plane than outside the plane. And clearly, this thing wasn't bolted in there effectively because it was a relatively new plane. 
And so the big question they're asking right now is, were those four bolts that connect the plane to the plug door, were they loose or were they even there? That's one of the questions being asked right now, whether they were missing completely because there's no sign of warped or it ripping off. It just fell off and it's still together. And there's no sign of these bolts. Um, By the way, if you're in Oregon and you find a bolt on the ground, uh, make sure to tell the NTSB. They're the ones investigating the cause of this incident. Uh, They said it's too soon to determine whether the flaw lies with Boeing. Remember, there's a whole process here. And of course, it was delivered to the airline. So they're trying to figure out if something was done during the time the airline had it, especially there were a few days where they were installing Wi-Fi on the plane at a separate facility in Oklahoma and whether that could have impacted this, whether that bolt door was taken off during that process. But there's a lot of pressure on Boeing here. We've discussed it on the podcast this week. The MAX planes have already cost them billions and billions of dollars with the crashes of those two MAX 8 planes in Ethiopia and in Indonesia several years ago that led to the grounding of the entire fleet. Remember, there's the MAX 7, the MAX 8. We're talking here about the MAX 9. And right now, they're trying to sell airlines the MAX 10, which is currently being developed and completed. They're about to be delivering MAX 10s to airlines. All versions of the same plane here, uh, different sizes, different configurations. So Boeing has a lot of pressure here, including if you look at the stock price the past couple of days, to get things right, to make things right, especially as they compete globally with Airbus, the big European plane manufacturer. So Boeing is working to develop an inspection process so the grounded planes can be cleared for service. The FAA said on Tuesday that Boeing is revising its instructions and the regulator still hasn't signed off on the process. So the planes will remain grounded. They thought they could inspect each plane after a few hours and put them back in. They're not quite ready to do that. They weren't happy necessarily with the initial instructions Boeing gave. And so they're waiting on revised instructions. Uh, And so we'll see how long this lasts. Jill, if you remember the MAX 8 situation, we thought that could last a couple of weeks. That lasted a couple of years of grounding. And depending on where you are in the world, there are other airlines that fly this, but this particular configuration with the plug door, this most impacts Alaska Air and United Airlines. And so you've been seeing a lot of delays with those two airlines as they've been trying to figure out how to get other planes into service if they have them uh, to accommodate passengers and scheduled flights. From CNBC, Meta said Tuesday that it will limit the type of content that teenagers on Facebook and Instagram are able to see as the company faces mounting claims that its products are addictive and harmful to the mental well-being of younger users. In a blog post, Meta said the new protections are designed to, quote, give teens more age-appropriate experiences on our apps. The updates will default teenage users to the most restrictive settings, prevent those users from searching about certain topics, and prompt them to update their Instagram privacy settings. This is according to the company. Meta expects to complete the update over the coming weeks, keeping teens under age 18 from seeing content that discusses struggles with self-harm and eating disorders, or that includes restricted goods or nudity, including content shared by a person that they follow. So the change comes here as there's a lot of pressure on Meta, including from a bipartisan group of 42 attorneys general representing 42 different states who announced back in October that they're suing Meta, alleging that the platforms are hurting teenagers and contributing to mental health problems, including body dysmorphia and eating disorders. The attorney general in New York, Letitia James, said when she announced the lawsuits that kids and teenagers are suffering from record levels of poor mental health and social media companies like Meta are to blame. It has profited from children's pain by intentionally designing platforms with manipulative features that make children addicted to their platforms. 
And that's not all. In November, over on Capitol Hill, there was testimony from a meta whistleblower, Arturo Bihar, who told lawmakers that the company was aware of the harms its products caused to young users, but failed to take appropriate action to remedy the problems. We've heard similar complaints going back to 2021. There was a whistleblower back then named Francis Hogan, who said that Facebook knew what they were doing, they knew they were harmful to teenagers, and they did nothing about it. Ultimately, the argument here is the companies here put profits above users' health and safety. And so amid all of this, they've been trying to roll out more safety features for younger users. And that included, uh, if you recall, last year, they paused their Instagram for kids uh, development. That was supposed to be an Instagram for kids as young as 10. That was paused. And probably in light of all of this, you won't see that being developed anytime soon. Jill, I was at an event over at uh, Instagram several months ago in New York where they invited a bunch of journalists, people who use the platform, etc. And they are taking this seriously. They understand that they're under the gun here and they need to be doing more. They were making a point of all the new safety features they're announcing, um, all the things that parents can do uh, to limit their children's social media use, etc. But uh, it's clear the drumbeat is continuing here. And one thing we'll be watching later this month, there's a, a big congressional hearing happening with a bunch of the social media executives, including Mark Zuckerberg, uh, will be testifying before Congress in the next few weeks. So much gets done at those hearings. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to be yelled at for a few hours at least, Jill. Okay, from Politico, Trump's immunity claim gets a frosty reception at an appeals court. A federal appeals court panel strongly suggested Tuesday that it would reject Donald Trump's claims of immunity from criminal charges related to his effort to subvert the 2020 election. With Trump looking on, the three judges expressed deep skepticism of his contention that a president could not be prosecuted even for assassinating a rival or selling military secrets, if he were not first impeached and convicted by Congress, the judge, Karen Henderson, a George H.W. Bush appointee, saying, quote, I think it is paradoxical to say that his constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed allows him to violate criminal law. Now, despite that inclination, the judges who also include Biden appointees, Florence Pan and Michelle Childs, appeared divided during Tuesday's oral argument over how to shape their decision. Jill, there was a notable moment uh, during the hearing when Trump's lawyer uh, was basically forced to concede, despite their arguments, that presidents do not have absolute immunity. He had to acknowledge that presidents can be impeached and then convicted. So clearly, our system does include ramifications for a president. This ruling, no matter which direction they go in, will go to the Supreme Court. In fact, Jack Smith, the prosecutor, of both of the federal indictments against Trump wanted to go straight to the Supreme Court uh, several weeks ago. They said, no, 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 you're going to follow the process, hence why we find ourselves at the Court of Appeals here. But it will end up at the Supreme Court. They will have to determine the limits on presidential power. By the way, it comes as the Supreme Court will also be hearing the Colorado Supreme Court case on whether they can kick Trump off a ballot. So a lot of Trump legal stuff going to the Supreme Court uh, in the coming weeks here. But on the main subject here, the immunity claim, Jill, this is key because Jack Smith wanted to go to trial here on March 4th. But given that Trump is arguing that he can't even be prosecuted because he's president, that will likely delay that trial. And this is a year where Trump, of course, is running for reelection as well as facing four criminal trials. Uh, and so if this March 4th trial gets pushed back, there's a whole bunch of stuff that runs into a whole domino effect here. And so we will likely see a pretty quick ruling from the appeals court. But of course, as I mentioned, the Supreme Court, 
So really interesting cases here when it comes to presidential power and the Constitution that we'll be following here in the coming months. On to another Trump case. This is one from Georgia from Newsweek. There are calls for Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis to be disqualified from Donald Trump's Georgia election interference case. It follows allegations that she has been involved in a romantic relationship with the prosecutor that she assigned to the case, Nathan Wade. So she hired him as a special prosecutor for the proceedings. The claims of their romantic relationship came in a filing made by Michael Roman, who is one of Trump's co-defendants. That legal motion was filed on Monday. It seeks to have his seven charges dismissed and Willis and her staff members disqualified from the case. Monday's filing accuses Willis of having, quote, engaged in a personal romantic relationship with Wade prior to the prosecutor being brought onto the case for which he was paid about $650,000 in what it termed a, quote, self-serving arrangement. The 127-page document was filed by Roman's attorney, Ashley Merchant, and it said, quote, sources close to both the special prosecutor and the district attorney have confirmed that they had an ongoing personal relationship during the pendency of the special prosecutor's divorce proceedings. The filing added, accordingly, the DA and the special prosecutor have violated laws regulating the use of public monies, suffer from irreparable conflicts of interest, and have violated their oaths of office under the Georgia Rules of Professional Conduct and should be disqualified from prosecuting the matter. Roman's filing also said that Wade took vacations with Willis, which were funded by payments that his company had received from Fulton County for working on the Trump case. Uh, We should mention none of this is confirmed. This is all just alleged at this point. Yes, but notably, you didn't hear any denials from Wade and Willis um, as this was coming out in the past 24 hours. Keep in mind, Wade is going through a divorce case right now, and Willis was subpoenaed by Wade's ex-wife. So there's clearly something going on here. Jill, you mentioned the vacations. Basically, the allegation here is that she hired Wade, paid Wade a bunch of money, and then Wade takes her to Napa Valley, takes her to the Caribbean on cruises, takes her to Florida, that she basically benefited by appointing her lover into a key role that she had power over. And we should note that he was appointed to this role, Wade was, despite having little to no experience prosecuting felonies, much less RICO cases, which is the Trump case here. By the way, Jill, we have some sources in Fulton County who have been critical of Wade now for a number of months. There's been curiosity within the professional circles there as to why he got this case. Now, clearly, if this is true, this makes a lot of sense. Uh, he billed the county, by the way, $250 an hour for his services. As you mentioned, he was paid at least 653000 potentially nearly a million dollars in legal fees for his work so far. Now, contracts like those are supposed to be approved by the Fulton County Board of Commissioners. There is no record, though, that Wade's contract was ever discussed by that county board, according to the filing. So the question here is not really the case against Trump. That stands. But what some of these people are arguing, including Trump himself, is that Willis is not professional here, that she exercised poor professional judgment, and that she has a conflict of interest in this case, and she should not be involved in this. And by the way, if you talk to some legal experts, legal ethicists, they say there's potential criminal exposure for her here in this quid pro quo, hiring hiring Wade into this role and then personally benefiting from it. Now, a reminder here, the Georgia case. This is the case Trump and 18 others were indicted on for claims they broke the law in trying to overturn the 2020 election results. Again, no questions as to the case itself. It's more about 
who Will has hired, and the conduct here, her personal conduct. The former president is facing 13 criminal charges in this RICO case. He has pled not guilty, called it politically motivated, etc., cetera, uh, and is taking a lot of joy in these latest allegations. He uh, wrote on his Truth Social website, all caps, all charges against me and others should be immediately dropped with apologies and monetary damages for the illegal and highly applicable prosecution of innocent people. Just the latest in uh, his posts about this. Now, you have the case, Jill, but with these issues Willis now faces, and we'll see how this unfolds over the coming days, she says she's going to respond in a court filing, not in public as of this recording. This could be catastrophic for the case. At least it could delay things significantly. Remember, this was the key case. You know, you have the New York case related to Stormy Daniels. You have the two federal cases. If Trump or another Republican is elected president next year, they can kill those two federal cases immediately. They're running the Justice Department. The Georgia case was considered the most significant criminal case against Trump that he has no control over and no Republican has control over if they become president because it's a state case. Well, this is not good for that case. We'll see what unfolds here. It's certainly not good for Willis. The bottom line is, we'll watch what happens. There were already going to be some delays in this case, but uh, certainly a, a bombshell allegation here. And uh, we will await Willis and Wade's response. All right. Switching gears from NPR, France saw its youngest ever prime minister and first openly gay prime minister named Tuesday as President Emmanuel Macron seeks a fresh start for the rest of his term amid growing political pressure from the far right. Gabriel Attal is 34 years old. He rose to prominence as the government spokesperson, then education minister, and had polled as the most popular minister in the outgoing government. His predecessor, Elizabeth Bourne, resigned Monday following political turmoil over an immigration law that strengthens the government's ability to deport foreigners. Macron will work with Attal to name a new government in the coming days, although some key ministers are expected to stay on. Under the French political system, the prime minister is appointed by the president, accountable to the parliament, and is in charge of implementing domestic policy, notably economic measures. The president holds substantial powers over foreign policy and European affairs and is the commander in chief of the country's armed forces. So not just a ceremonial type of role here. Yeah, France has a unique system because in many countries, many parliamentary systems, the prime minister is the key figurehead in government. In France, not unlike America, they have a president who has a lot of authority, right, in Macron. But they sort of have this hybrid thing, right, because they also have the prime minister. And things were becoming very difficult for Elizabeth Bourne uh, in the government so far because of all these controversial measures that Macron has been pushing through. So he needed a fresh face to deal with parliament uh, and make some deals here. Now, it's interesting, Jill, as we face an election here between a 78-year-old and an 81-year-old, to note that the French government, Macron is 46, the new prime minister is 34. So basically, half the age of our leaders right now uh, over in France. That said, not the easiest time over in France, given a number of the crises they're facing in regards to retirement age, the economy, and immigration. Notably, Macron, who's in his second term right now, has had to shift rightward during his presidency, in particular on security and migration issues. That comes as his more far-right rival, Marine Le Pen, and her anti-immigration party has gained influence and done significantly well in recent years. And so he's trying to thread the needle here as his country moves right uh, to ensure that you know he can uh, stay in charge here, maintain his authority. Uh, and so we'll see to what extent Atal is able to help him. 
a number of critics from both the left and the right who have been taking shots at the fact that Atal is only 34, has limited experience, uh, and that he comes from Paris and is seen as out of touch with the people struggling in the provinces. Again, see the comparison here between the U.S. and France. You know, he's he's urban raised, a city boy, uh, and doesn't understand the needs of the regular folks out there in the more rural parts of the country. So as you zoom in, politics starts to look the same in a number of countries. Mosh, the other similarity in terms of politics that I noticed as well is that France and Europe in general, like the United States, has also shifted to the right when it comes to immigration. Yeah. And it, it's an issue that neither the U.S. or Europe has really gotten a handle on. Yeah. And keep in mind, in Europe, it's even bigger deal because we consider ourselves in the U.S. a nation of immigrants, right? We're a nation of migrants from the beginning. In Europe, you have these national identities where, like, for example, in France, if you're third generation Turkish, fourth generation Turkish or Algerian or Moroccan, you will be viewed as Moroccan or Algerian. Whereas here we have hybrid identities, right? Korean American, Mexican American, and by maybe the second or third generation, just American. It's not the same way in Europe. So in Europe, there's a lot of um, angst right now over the identities of these countries, what it means to be Finnish, Swedish, French, British. And so they're struggling with it in a way that we can't even conceive of in the U.S. And finally, from the Washington Post, how many books did you read last year and how do you stack up to other Americans? The data on most books read comes from a recent Economist YouGov poll about America's reading habits. Of 1,500 Americans surveyed, 46% finished, zero books, Zippo, no books last year, 5% read just one. So if you read more than two books in 2023, congratulations, you are in the top half of U.S. adults. Reading five books puts you in the top 33%. Reading 10 books puts you in the top 21%. And people who read more than 50 books are the true one percenters. They are people who read more books than 99% of their fellow Americans. The poll counted all types of books, but it found that physical paper books are still about twice as popular as ebooks. About 42% of us read physical books in the past year compared to about 22% who read digital books or 19% who read audiobooks. Is it considered reading if it's an audiobook or is it listening? I think you you process it, right? You ingested the book, you took in the book, you learned the book. We accept that. We give full credit for that here at the Mo News Podcast, given that we're an audio platform. <laughs> Who are we to judge? So notably, as they dove down here, digital books are the most popular among the heaviest readers, presumably because you run out of shelf space alarmingly fast if you're plowing through 50 plus books a year. Makes sense. The popularity of book formats remain consistent across politics, across demographics, with the exception of audiobooks. About a quarter of Americans under age 45 use audiobooks, but only 9% of those ages 65 and older use audiobooks, which I guess also makes sense. As far as book ownership, 85% of us, five out of six of us, own at least one physical book, while 50% of Americans own one electronic book. The most popular genres were history and mystery. And now to the gender divide. About one out of four women read a mystery or crime book versus 15% of men. Major gender gaps also existed in romance books where women double men's interest and in sci-fi, which showed the opposite pattern, double men to women. The least popular genre across the board was poetry, poetry books, Jill. The only poetry book that I have is Shel Silverstein, Where the Sidewalk Ends. 
And I still love it and read it to my daughter. I don't think I've read a poetry book since I uh, was assigned in AP literature in high school. But, you know, I aspire, Jill, to (laughs) read some poetry at some point. One more note here. They also asked Americans how they organize their physical books. And it appears we're split. 19% of Americans organize their books by genre, whereas 18% of uh, Americans organize their books by size. Then there are the alphabetical types. About 10% of uh, people organize their books alphabetically by author. Another 8% of Americans organize their books alphabetically by title. Jill, I don't see in the write-up here, we in the Wanunu household now organize our books by color. Well, that's the new thing, right? There was this, It was a, a big trending thing on social media. Some author came out and said that that's how you should do it. You also didn't mention that 28% of people don't organize their books at all. They just kind of put them on the bookshelf wherever they may fall. That was me pre-marriage, single Mosh, just kind of put his books. I, I used to, tr- I would do initially put them together with some rhyme or reason topically. And then over time, it just become a total mess. I do think that organizing the books by color, it, there's something to it. I think it looks great and it is very pleasing yeah. on the eye. I don't know if, it's easy to find the books that way. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it's not. But, you know, yes, it, it is pleasing in the eye. It's created a nice backdrop for some of our Instagram videos. <laughs> but, and that's what matters. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If you're betting against me, you bet wrong. I have made it to On This Day in History. We begin, Jill, in 1776. <laughs> The question is, will I make it through on this day? But I did make it on this day. On this day, speaking of books, Thomas Paine published Common Sense, actually technically a pamphlet, a 50-page pamphlet that sold more than half a million copies within a few months and called for a war of independence against the British. It would, of course, become known as the American Revolution. On this day in 1901, a drilling derrick near Beaumont, Texas, near Spindletop Hill, turned into a geyser of crude oil, coating the landscape for hundreds of feet It signaled the oil boom of Texas. That one derrick actually would soon start to produce 100,000 barrels a day, more than all the other oil wells in America combined at the time, really transforming Southeast Texas. Of course, today, if you you live in Southeast Texas, Houston area, et cetera, it is oil country, and it's been that way for a very long time. It was not that way until this day in 1901. Of course, a reminder... For those of you at home, fun fact, the U.S. is now the largest producer of oil in the world. On this day in 1964, the U.S. Surgeon General announced that cigarette smoking was linked to lung cancer. The industry fought it for decades, Jill. We are still, they were still fighting in the 80s, 90s, etc. But it was known as early as the early 60s, uh, the linkage between cigarettes and lung cancer. All right, as we tease at the top, what a number of HBO fans will say was the best show in HBO history, though this is disputed. On this day in 1999, the first episode of The Sopranos aired on HBO, starring James Gandolfini, Edie Falco, a classic. Jill, do you agree with that assessment, or are you on Team Sex in the City? I am on Team Sex in the City. In terms of enjoyment factor, yeah. was it really a more quality show? That I can't tell you in terms of just plot and development and, and characters. But in terms of just binge watching Sex in the City and enjoying it and following their fashion and laughing, I mean, Sex in the City was it for me. But The Sopranos had a place in my heart. I went to high school with Jamie Lynn Sigler, who played Meadow on The Sopranos. She was a year younger than I was. 
And I very distinctly remember her getting a part in a show on HBO, which at that time we were like, HBO makes shows. What, what is this? Blah, blah, blah. And of course, it wound up being the biggest thing. It was known in the 90s. It had, it had boxing. Like Sopranos and, and Sex and the City really become their first big breakout hits on HBO. Jill, I should note, there's probably Team Game of Thrones as oh, best HBO true. show of all time. We should probably do a, a poll on Instagram, see where the folks land on this. I actually think I would land on Game of Thrones, even over Sex oh, and the okay, City. okay, there you yeah. go. But let's do a poll. I would love to see where people are on that. All right, and we end on music, as we typically do, on this day 44 years ago. The Buggles released their debut studio album, The Age of Plastic, including the hit song Video Killed the Radio Star. Notably, just a little bit later after this release, a new cable channel would start called MTV, the first music video they would play, <laughs> Video Killed the Radio Star. And then streaming Killed Radio. You could still write that song, Jill. I, I haven't heard that version of the song yet. I'm on it. <laughs> well, oh, by the way, we should note radio, not dead. Uh, XM Sirius Radio uh, and still AM radio across the country is still pretty influential. So I'll write the song and then you could do like the rap interlude where you where you add <laughs> that tidbit. Oh, oh. <laughs> and finally... Maybe we consider this our Gen Z mention on this day, Jill, on this day in 2006. The High School Musical soundtrack was released. It sold only 6,000 copies its first week, but then the movie premieres uh, just a couple weeks later, and uh, the soundtrack would eventually sell more than 4 million copies, making it the number one album of 2006. Jill, before we go, it was a, a late Monday night in your household, I know. Uh, congratulations on the big, big college football victory. Thank you, Mosh. Uh, it was a big day for us Michigan fans. We have not had a championship in quite a while, so this was this was huge. Twenty seven years since the nineties. Oh, I know, you Mosh, peaked, as you like to say. <laughs> yes, I, yeah, I, I peaked, and uh, Michigan's last peak was both in the nineties. <laughs> Michigan last peaked, but you guys are both having a resurgence yes. in twenty twenty four. We're coming back, baby. Um, all right, everybody. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Mo News podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the app store. By the way, for the record, if you're not a frequent listener of the podcast, Jill will often joke about how she peaked yes. in the 90s. That was not me trying to denigrate her. Oh, no, anymore. I 100% peaked in the 90s. It has been a downhill ride from there. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll, we'll, we'll see you tomorrow. Hopefully, I'll have most of my voice back. Safe travels, Mosh. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.